0: WQXR, in conversation.
1: Harriet Stubbs is an English pianist and a personality with a capital P, who spends most of her year living in New York's Lower East Side, but relocated back to London to be closer to her family and her instruments during the lockdown. Since being back home, she started a series of nightly concerts from her West London flat that have attracted a regular audience who gather outside her window to hear her play everything from Bach, Bowie, to the Beatles. Harriet is one of the few young musicians that I run into in New York. From time to time, we've become friends. We love to talk our heads off when we're here in the city. but. Separated by an ocean? Well, we can still talk, especially with her flat being outfitted now with pro recording equipment and a great piano. So we spoke about social distancing concerts, working on her debut album Heaven and Hell, and the role of the piano in the classical and classic rock genres. I'm Paul Cavalcante, and this is WQXR Classical New York in conversation with... Concert pianist Harriet Stubbs, welcome.
0: Thank you, lovely to be here.
1: I say concert pianist because you would imagine that a concert hall and cheering crowds would greet you in a performance situation. But you, like so many people in the world, have been in the lockdown mode for the last couple of months. But you've found a great way of innovating your practice time into something that the community can share. You've actually opened your window and your musical heart, and people have responded by gathering outside and listening to you play every single day.
0: Yeah, it's been absolutely amazing. And it started by sort of noticing that people tend to listen when I practice, and I know that from when I come back over the summer and, you know, prepare rep for kind of the September-October season, and I thought, well, as that happens, and there's nowhere to go outside, what if... And the weather was stunning for me. It was a May that we've never... You know, it was so beautiful, the weather, the entire month. And so I thought, what if it happens at the same time every day? And that started to attract people. And then I just thought, well, I might as well advertise that I'm doing it every day. And every single day, I open the window, and there's a crowd waiting. It's just unbelievable.
1: So they've learned. Now, you told me that you're actually coming up on your 50th performance, so that would work out to something like two months and change of doing yes. this every day. yeah. Wow, but you've been doing this all of your life. Tell me a little bit about the Harriet Stubbs backstory.
0: I started playing when I was three and I started performing when I was four. Uh, and then I went to Guildhall uh, when I was five, I was full scholarship and I went to my first really influential teacher, Jimmy Gibb, um, who's the youngest ever to play the proms and I uh, professor emeritus at Guildhall. And he said he didn't take children, but he took me and uh, then started doing concerto performances when I was seven and touring and doing kind of 60 concerts a year from there and solo recitals and then was in the Harry Potter movies. Uh, I was a teenager, continued touring, did my undergrad in London and then moved to New York uh, to do my master's, stayed on and kind of created what I wanted to be placing classical in a new space. I wanted to do something not just because I love music but something with classical music that was going to give it to people that wouldn't normally listen to it. And that's what I've tried to make my career about.
1: And that led to an interesting album project that goes back a couple of years, uh, Heaven and Hell, The Doors of Perception, a meeting of Blake poetry, some of the usual and not so usual classical subjects, and a little bit of the 60s psychedelic world, including a cameo appearance by one of the iconic personalities of that time, and production by a guy who has turned the knobs on Grammy award-winning pop records. So tell me about how that album project came together and seems to be the nexus of your whole uh, concept here.
0: Yes, so I met Ross uh, in a deli. I met him in Barney Russ Greengrass. Teitelman. Ross titleman Ross titleman Yes. Uh,
1: Grammy award-winning producer of James Taylor, George Harrison, Steve Winwood, Ricky Lee Jones, and others.
0: Yes, and we became friends and we met up for a milkshakes and talked about what we'd, both our musical experiences and he had the most incredible stories. And um, we wanted to work together, but we didn't know how we would do something that brought both of our musical worlds together. And then the concept of this album came together through my love of Blake. I thought, what about placing classical with Blake in a rock and roll setting, placing the idea that it was a 3D vision of literature, classical music, and and rock and roll, and how would we do that? How would we project that vision? Um, And so the idea of having someone reading the Blake and curating Blake to set up the narrative of going through the door's perception which was Blakey and then later taken up by Aldous Huxley and The Doors. Uh, and we decided on Marianne Faithful, who did an incredible job and reads it over John Adams' and Gates. And Marianne,
1: interestingly, is someone who came through and survived COVID during this time that we've all been in downtime. She caught it, but she got past it. She's one of the iconic figures of 60s uh, pop and rock and roll, and it must have been wonderful to uh, to know that, that she's put her blessing on this ambitious project, both intellectually and in terms of execution. Let's go to the execution part and how and what you assemble to be the classical pieces that help tell this story. Tell me specifically what you play on uh, Heaven and Hell, The Doors of Perception.
0: Yeah, so it opens with John Adams's Phrygian Gates, um, which provides texture and direction whilst also leaving a platform for the human voice. And it grows with the text. So it seemed like the, an appropriate way and um, John Adams agreed to us using a segment of Frigian Gates, actually a much longer piece in order to set it up specifically for this album um, and to go around the text. And so it goes, the idea is it goes from innocence to experience to a Blakeian idea of higher innocence. And so we go on a journey through to um, Bach, Bessoni, um through Mozart, Shostakovich, Prokofiev, ending in sort of Scriabin and Ligeti as we come out the other side.
1: That's quite a journey. And uh, the poetry of Blake paces almost a, a, like programmatic titles would identify a long-form piece of orchestral music. Uh, you have created this little uh, miniature uh, recital that is uh, connected in each of its steps and the progression of music to Blake building and building from poem to poem And the two run a sort of a parallel course then.
0: Yes, and the relationship between the keys as well. So as you go into hell, you go into D minor, which is traditionally associated with death. Um, And we go to E major in the Scriabin, which is traditionally associated with heaven. And so um, the relationships between them are, are quite carefully strung together.
1: Wow, that's quite a quite a project, and it sounds a little heady for out the window. Uh, are you knocking them dead with uh, military polonaise and Turkish rondo and the minute waltz in a minute and a half, or are you doing this heavy duty stuff?
0: No, I'm doing heavy duty stuff, and I'm doing popular stuff as well.
1: Classical and pop that have merged before, like like things that are based on classical themes.
0: Yes. So I will usually start with something hugely classical and virtuosic like the Bar Chacon, or or Chopin Etude or uh, the Scriabin Sonata or um, Percy Granger's solo arrangement of the Greedy Piano Concerto. Um, and then that sets everybody up hearing classical and ready for classical, but also understanding that it could kind of go anywhere from there. And then we'll take Brahms, or Beethoven Pathetic variations or something like that, um, followed by Beatles Blackbird or something of that variety, and then come out with Bowie or whatever. And so no one really knows where it's going, but everybody's understood the relationship and they've been they've been forced to listen to intense classical without even knowing it was happening. And then they're already there and their ears really are set up for it. And wherever you go, kind of, you know.
1: So how many pieces will you play in a given daily recital?
0: usually five
1: that's that's quite a set and and it holds this crowd they stand outside of your window well actually now we can see this on YouTube right have videos been put together of, of-
0: yes Hammersmith and Film Council um came to do a piece and that's been picked up by uh, BBC and my London news and Trinity mirror group so um it's in quite a few places and audience members tag and do videos all the time as well so they're on YouTube just from people that have filmed it themselves
1: If you're an old school jazzer, you probably know and remember so-called third stream music. The modern jazz quartet, for example, did some wonderful examples of that. But you're sort of like a third streamer who's pushing into the classic rock era. And you're finding yourself drawn to, as you mentioned, the Beatles, obviously, or Marianne Faithful's connection to the Rolling Stones. And then there's David Bowie, who seems to be an artist for the ages. And you connected with a musician who played with David Bowie and who is classically trained, as you are, and who came up with a beautiful a piano boil down of one of Bowie's pop hits. And it's uh, it's become one of your concert show pieces. Tell us about how life on Mars has come down to Earth in your little corner of London.
0: Nobody actually can believe it's life on Mars because it starts with this prelude and then you feel the reaction when the tune comes in. And people go, oh my God, I reckon it's life on Mars. And then afterwards, their reaction to it is, this everybody recognizes David Bowie, <laughs> you know. Um, and so performing it is always such a wonderful thing to do. Um, so Mike had a classical background. Mike
1: Garson, who was a concert keyboard accompanist of David Bowie in the early 70s.
0: He first went in 1972, but he did all of his US concerts right up until his last one. Um, and he's the pianist on Aladdin Sane. And that wow. really iconic piano part is is Mike. Uh, and his, variat- his Bowie variations um, are taken from his improvisations that he did live in concert with David um, after, you know, playing life on Mars for the, you know, hundreds time and playing with it and using his classical background and technique and virtuosity and pianism. He's created these kind of masterpieces that really just serve to lift
1: You have told me more than once that your quote-unquote work husband is Rachmaninoff. Tell me about the endless fascination with Sergei and uh, how you have devoted so much of your life so far to studying and learning his ambitious works.
0: Yes. um, I actually recorded Rack 3, Summer Before Last, which was something that I would really, really wanted to do. Um, I think... What never ceases to amaze me about Ratmanov is just when you think you've got there, he lets you know that you haven't. So <laughs> you think that you've reached this kind of sense of accomplishment, and then he realizes another layer, and another layer, and another layer. Um, and I remember memorizing the second movement of the third piano concerto and thinking this is just never going to happen. Like I, it's not. And then suddenly one day he gave it to me. But my God, did he make me work for it! <laughs> <laughs>
1: So the layering in Rachmaninoff is, uh, is the key to it all.
0: Yes, the long lines over just scrunchiest harmony and um, most virtuosic, fun music that just takes you into world's beyond imagination, I think.
1: Well, it's interesting. He's a particular inspiration as a guy who, whether it was, you know, literally, physically or emotionally in a kind of a lockdown for a period of time and battling his own demons. Uh, the triumph of coming out of that is the music that you're describing in his life story, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you can, you, um, after the, the second piano concerto, um, there was a gap until the third as he kind of rediscovered what he was gonna do next. And the second is very famous, you know, all of its lines are used in various films. And, And then the third is this just step further, which to me is perfection and one of my favorite things on earth. And it starts with such a simple, simple melody.
1: And that second uh, piano concerto includes the melody that became a pop song uh, by Eric Carmen, All By Myself, which is one of your out-the-window showstoppers, I understand, in your repertoire. (laughs) It is. So you catch people's ears who come by with these tunes that they've heard on the radio, and then you sneak a little bit of unadulterated classical in there to show them who's boss. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I think that that they, you know, I'll tell the story, i say, oh, All By Myself, you know, What's the relationship? So, oh well, actually, it was Ratman and I. Really, and you know, I love I love the reaction to that. It's so fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, now you know this can't go on forever for all of us. Uh, here I am speaking to you from my home studio. You're in your London flat, which is in what corner of uh, London town again?
0: It's between West Kensington and Baron's Court. It's It's a wonderful
1: place for for foot traffic, so to speak. People coming by, hearing you out the window. But but again, this can't go on forever. So when you do return to concert performing or when you go back into the recording studio, what from this experience do you think you'll be taking with you creatively or practically?
0: Definitely the importance of a grassroots movement in terms of building um, a true relationship with an audience. Um, The people that come back, every day come back for something specific and have a story and have a reason why they came. And that's really powerful. Um, And I think that's easy to forget sometimes when we're caught up in the middle of being very, very busy, what the point is. And that, that is the point right there. (laughs) So I think taking that with me and creating shows that do serve everybody in the sense that it's not doing a mediocre job of various platforms. It's simply Tricking people into hearing classical music and then falling in love with it—that's how I think of it.
1: All right, and and tell me about the ages that are coming to the window. Uh, are you finding it mostly older ears that are that are pulled in by this like moths to the light, or are there young people who are stopping and and if they catch a glimpse of you uh, because you're young and certainly attractive, and they must go, oh, who's she? She's cool. How does she know this music? It's
0: <laughs> everybody. It's the it's lady everybody. with her baby that can't get her baby to be quiet until it hears music. There's there's her, and then there's um, the trendy teenagers that came in a massive group told all of their friends and they'd heard life on mars and they were all outside i couldn't believe it it was like sort of you know looking out on the east village it was incredible and then on another day it will be people that are alone and living alone and elderly who have walked outside their houses to hear the music um and then sometimes it's parents with their children who'll line and sit on on the pavement and watch with their masks
1: on. You know, before there was uh, social media, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, before there was even recording, classical music was created to be performed in a space with other people in attendance. And sometimes those spaces were very small and intimate and casual in this way. So this has been, I suppose, a kind of a gift to you as an artist to return to the medium for which much of this music was written in the first place.
0: Absolutely and to hear the stories of, of why and also what they do, right? So there's uh, the nurses that are just coming off their shifts, um, which is really lovely to play for them, who are exhausted, who describe being so tired and then being uplifted by music. Um, and then there's painters that I discovered that live around the corner that I'm now friends with and seeing their artwork and other musicians that are attracted. And so this this community, and they've said... Everybody that's sort of come has said that they've never had a sense of community on this corner before. And it's the first time that they're all meeting each other. And it's just kind of amazing You know, every day and they're outside talking.
1: As awful as this experience has been and for the toll that it's taken, there are always good things that come out of bad things. And this is a story that is being told from city to city. In New York City, WQXR broadcasts from a studio in Soho. We have the renowned... Jerome L. Green performance space, which unfortunately had to be boarded up because of looting and, and a difficult situation in New York in, in recent weeks. And what's happened not only for our boarded up storefront, so to speak, but other storefronts all through New York Soho is that artists have come out and they're starting to uh, create art on the boards. You have all these blank canvases around town that are crying out for a little expression. And so once again, the city is being reclaimed by artists and people living entirely in the moment. And uh, the, the over-manufactured aspect of our part of town and all of its contrivance has been shut down, locked out, and and the artists are back in charge and it's kind of a mini miracle. So maybe they'll come a day sooner than later when you'll come to the green space and play and the boards will be gone. You've prepared something by Beethoven.
0: Yes, on the second movement of the Pathetique Sonata, a set of variations that take quite an unexpected harmonic turn um, and they're great fun to play.
1: Harriet Stubbs, thank you for your time, your talent, and for sharing a little bit of yourself. It's as easy as just rolling back the blinds and opening up that window. (laughs) English pianist Harriet Stubbs finishing off the interview with a performance of variations on Beethoven's Pathétique Sonata, arranged by former David Bowie pianist Mike Garson, recorded from her flat in London. This interview was produced by me, Paul Cavalcante, with Rosa Golan and Luca Vasek. The executive producer was Lucas Krohn and the technical producer was George Wellington. In Conversation, from Classical New York, WQXR.